And Father, as we now come to your word, we once again thank you for your word. And we pray that as we study your word, that you would use your word to accomplish your purposes in our lives, that your word would do your work. We thank you that your word is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it cannot be broken, that it is sufficient. And we pray, O Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, that you would speak to us now as we open your word, and that you would use your word to make us more like Christ in order that Christ may be exalted in this time and in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 10. We're going to be finishing our study in John chapter 10 today. If you need a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles out in the foyer. Uh, If you just go straight out that back door, they are going to be right in front of you back there. So if you need a Bible, we invite you to go ahead and, and take one of those. But we will be looking at John chapter 10, verses 30 to 42 today. John chapter 10, verses 30 to 42. You know, over the course of the lockdowns that we've had over the course of the past year, most of us have been looking for things to do. Uh, Most of us have had uh, more boredom than we, we are accustomed to. And so one of the things that my wife and I have done is we've found some very interesting, I'll use that word, very interesting YouTube channels to watch from time to time. Uh, One of them uh, is kind of a, I guess, a modern version of the old show Unsolved Mysteries. If some of you who are old like me, you'll remember that show. Um, It it was, it ran through the, through the nineties, maybe in the eighties, in the early two thousands. But basically the format of of the videos on this channel, it's pretty simple and straightforward. The, The host just puts together several clips, several video clips of Uh, things that are unexplained or at least appear to be uh, unexplained. They're at least mysterious and difficult to explain. But after watching five or ten or so of the videos on this channel, we started to notice that this host uh, would fairly consistently ask something along the lines of this. He'd say something like, is this a glitch in the matrix or is this aliens? And we started finding um, th- that false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. You know, there are other explanations besides being in a matrix and uh, aliens. But we started finding this false dichotomy almost humorous. And I started wondering, as he asked this question over and over again, are there really people out there who believe that we're living in, like, the matrix? Uh, you know, obviously that's a reference to the movies uh, from the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, which implies that we're not really living in a reality, but we're living in some kind of simulation of reality. So I did what everybody does in this day and age when they have a question. I I typed the question into my favorite search engine, and I was shocked uh, because there were so many pages of answers uh, in the affirmative that there are so many people who believe that we are living in a matrix and in some kind of simulation. Uh, There really are people who believe that. Uh, There are actually an increasing number of people who are becoming convinced that we don't live in reality, but that uh, that what we perceive to be reality is just 
something that's being fed into our brains from some outside source. But one of the blogs that I came across in this search was titled, 15 Signs That We're Living in the Matrix. Um, just to give you a, only 15, can you believe it? I mean, just to give you a couple of them, one of those signs is we're really, really lucky to even exist. And the author goes on to note many of the arguments that we would refer to as fine-tuning arguments, arguments that show the precision that's necessary for us to even exist in the universe on this planet. He writes, quote, how did we get so lucky that the conditions of our universe are just right so that we humans could come into existence? One possible answer is that we didn't get lucky. We agree so far, right? And he says this, quote, Someone programmed the strength of dark matter and other variables necessary to sustain life into a computer system. Another reason that the author gives is the Big Bang doesn't add up. And from an atheistic worldview, we would agree. He notes that astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson and theoretical physicist Brian Greene recently recorded a podcast in which they suggested that we must be living in some type of simulation because, in their words, the Big Bang Theory doesn't make mathematical sense, end quote. In other words, the idea that there was nothing, but then there was something, in fact, there was everything, suddenly, um, is mathematically impossible. They know that something doesn't come from nothing. But rather than concluding, okay, there, there must be a creator. There must be a God. Their theory instead is that we must live in some type of matrix simulation. Now, that's Neil deGrasse Tyson and an astrophysicist or a theoretical physicist named Brian Greene. Uh, these are very intelligent, educated people. Uh, if we're being completely honest here, we can't avoid the fact that these very intelligent, very educated people coming up with uh, outlandish theories about things like our existence and our reality from a biblical perspective isn't that surprising. Uh, evolution, which is, which is more ridiculous? Evolution, the idea that uh, we came from slime, that intelligence came from non-intelligence, uh, or that we're living in a matrix. I don't know. Maybe the matrix makes a little bit more sense. But how is it that such intelligent, such educated people miss obvious truths and conclusions about reality, like the fact that God exists? How do they miss that? It's obviously not an issue of the intellect. It's not an issue of the mind. These are very sharp-minded people. Scripture gives us the answer. Scripture tells us exactly why they come up with these kinds of ideas. Rather than being an issue of the mind or the intellect, it's an issue of the heart. This is a Romans 1.18 issue. Romans 1.18 to 19 says this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. It's talking about natural revelation. God made his existence and some of his attributes 
obvious to every single person, but what do people do with that by nature? They try to hide it. They try to sweep it under the rug. They suppress it intentionally in unrighteousness. The truth is that the evidence of God's existence is absolutely everywhere. It doesn't take a deep-thinking person to realize that everything that we see, everything that we know about is contingent. That is, its existence depends on something else existing before it. Like these trees out here, where did they come from? Well, they came from a nut or they came from some type of seed. Well, where did that seed come from? Another tree like that. Well, where did that tree come from? And all the way back. Everything is contingent. Everything depends on its, uh, everything's existence depends on something existing before it. And so we realize that includes energy, right? Energy in the universe is constantly winding down. It's constantly lessening. So it's impossible for us to have a universe that has existed infinitely or eternally. We realize that there is incredible order in the universe and that we couldn't exist in a universe, we couldn't exist on a planet that was not perfectly fine-tuned for our existence. The only explanation for these things that makes sense is that this world is designed, ordered, and maintained by God. And of course, that is exactly what the Bible teaches. And yet... The scriptures also tell us that because of man's sin, because of his fallen nature, people intentionally, very deliberately suppress the truth about God. And they do it for the same reason that they will not come to the light. It's because they love darkness. It's because man, by nature, loves sin and is in bondage to sin and in his nature does not even desire to be set free from that bondage. We must be saved by grace alone. That's the key word, alone. We must be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way. It must be done entirely apart from works or merit. Now, some people say, you know, I believe that. I believe that we're saved by grace through faith, but uh, faith is our doing. It, it must not be considered a work. And if that's the case, if faith isn't a work, uh, and man is left to believe or not, then, then God must also not consider faith in Christ to be good either, because Scripture clearly teaches that none does good. Faith is a gift from God. That's why we say that salvation is by grace alone. That's why we say that first, before we say through faith alone. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. There's an order to the solas, to those, those doctrines. Because the reality is that there is more than enough evidence. The evidence is more than sufficient for a person to believe. And yet, even the most intelligent people by nature would rather believe in ridiculous, far-fetched theories like evolution or that we're living in some kind of matrix-like simulation. Uh, they'd rather believe that than believe in Jesus. But we've seen the same thing actually taking place in Jesus' ministry, haven't we? As we studied the, the Gospel of John, they might not deny that there is a God. These Pharisees might not deny that there's a God, but they refuse to believe in the God. They refuse to believe in 
Jesus, which reveals that whatever God it is they worship isn't God at all. It's a God with a lower case G. It's, a, it's an idol of their own making. The previous passage had everything to do with why people believe in Jesus. Verse 26 told us, it's because we're his sheep that anyone believes. It's not that we're his sheep because we believe. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, you believe because, he said to the Pharisees, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. The implication being, if anyone believes, it's because they're his sheep. And it ended, that passage ended with an unshakable assurance that we're given, and that is that the sheep were given to Christ in eternity past by the Father, and that no one will snatch them out of his hand. The Father also holds them in his hand, and that doubly guarantees that all of the sheep will persevere in their faith until the end. No one will snatch them out of Jesus' hand or the Father's hand. In the passage that we come to today then, which comes immediately after being given that assurance, Jesus is going to confront the Pharisees with several lines of evidence, several reasons that they should believe in him, that they should believe that he is God in the flesh. And yet what we're going to see is that they will not believe because they're not his sheep. So the point of this passage is that all persons have a moral obligation to believe in Jesus because Jesus' words, Jesus' works, scripture, and eyewitness testimony from those who saw his ministry all give us every reason in the world to believe. So let's start with Jesus' words. He claimed verbally to be God. Look at what he says in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. Could preach a sermon just on that. That is a rich, deep, very significant statement. This has everything to do with what Jesus just said in giving us that blessed assurance of the security of our salvation. We are safe And we are secure in Jesus' hands, and we are safe and secure in the Father's hands. So what does it mean when Jesus says, I and the Father are one? Well, at the very least, what Jesus is saying is that they are one in terms of their will. They at least have the same will. If the will of Jesus were not perfectly aligned with the will of the Father, then obviously Jesus would be in sin. But his will, Jesus' will is always in line with the will of the Father, and that includes what he just said in those previous two verses where he's talking about the assurance and the security of our salvation. Jesus' will and the Father's will are exactly the same. There is literally zero difference between the Son's will and the Father's will when it comes to preserving the sheep and when it comes to anything else as well. But there's more than that that's implied in what Jesus says here. Because anybody can say, uh, you know, the, I'm going I'm to make sure that you stay saved for the rest of your life and, and into eternity. I'm, I'm going to make sure that I do that. So what also must be implied in this is ability. Power. Power is also implied in Jesus' statement here that he and the Father are one. Jesus not only promises to keep his sheep, but he is able. 
He's claiming that he is able to keep his sheep just as the Father is able to keep the sheep. When Jesus says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand, he's claiming to possess power. He's claiming to possess ability, an ability that that no human being could possibly claim to have. That's a power that only God could rightfully claim to have. But we have to understand, and, and this one is not optional, that when Jesus says that he is one with the Father, he is not saying that he is the Father. Now, if you look at these verses that led up to this point, if you look at them very carefully, it would make absolutely no sense if Jesus was saying that he also was the Father. He's talking about different functions that the Father has from him. In this, they are, they are united, but the Father gave the sheep to Christ. It would make absolutely no sense to conclude that Jesus is the same exact person as the Father. So there are some people who claim to be Christians who believe that God the Father is God the Son and is God the Holy Spirit. And these are all three uh, modes or manifestations of God. This is a heretical understanding of the Trinity called modalism. Uh, T.D. Jakes is, uh, is a very well-known, very popular uh, preacher who is a modalist. The correct understanding, the orthodox understanding, the, the understanding of the Trinity that is found in Scripture and that is found in the, the early creeds that really, you know, tried to define this doctrine of the Trinity, the correct orthodox understanding of the Trinity is that there is one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons, one God. Now think about it. If the Father and the Son were one person, what kind of sense would those previous verses even make? Jesus would have been saying, no one will snatch my sheep from my hand. I gave them to myself. That doesn't make any sense. No, Jesus makes distinctions between himself and the Father in terms of their personhood. In terms of their mission, they are the same. In terms of their power, they are the same. God the Father and God the Son are one in will, one in power. Uh, The orthodox way of articulating this would be to say they are one in substance, and yet they have different roles related to salvation. The Father didn't redeem the sheep, and Jesus didn't elect the sheep. Rather, the Father is the one who elected the sheep, And Jesus is the one who redeemed the sheep. Now, there are at least, at least, and there's a much bigger list of this somewhere, I'm sure, but there are at least five very important, very profound theological implications of Christ's unity with the Father. The first is this. The first implication is that we have knowledge of God in Christ, perfect knowledge of God in Christ, since Christ himself is fully God and fully man. It's one thing to know abstract propositions and, and truths about God, and it's very different, you know, and, and to know what he's revealed in his law, but it's very different, something entirely different for God to reveal himself to us down at our level in the person of Jesus Christ. We can know God only through Jesus. The second implication is that because Jesus is God, 
And because God is infinite in nature and being, we can be absolutely certain that our sins really are forgiven through his work on Calvary because only his death could offer infinite merit unto sinners. One sinner cannot die for the sins of another person, but Jesus, who is fully God and whose blood is therefore of infinite value, is the only one qualified and capable of atoning for sin because he never sinned. He was perfect. His will was always aligned with the Father. He always did what the Father desired. Number three, because Jesus is God and because God is infinitely good, infinitely powerful, and infinitely knowing and wise, we can completely trust that he will fulfill every single last promise he has made. Only he, only Jesus can confidently say, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Nobody but God can make that promise and keep that promise. Jesus can keep that promise because he is one with the Father, because he is fully God. Number four, we have victory over death in Christ. Because Christ would die and resurrect from the grave on the third day. And he promised back in John chapter 6 verse 44 that he will raise on the last day all whom the Father has drawn to him. That's talking about forgiveness on the last day. That's talking about not being under God's condemnation on the last day. All who are drawn to Christ will be risen on the last day. And therefore, we have victory over death in Christ. Number five is that Christ possesses all authority. Because he's one with the Father, because he is fully God, he possesses all authority. And as such, we must commit to obeying his teachings and becoming like him in all of our ways. Because he's one with the Father, he has uncontested, un paralleled authority to instruct us and to guide us through life. And no human being ever on the face of the planet has the power or has the authority to ignore him or to contradict him. No mayor, no governor, no president, no congress, no king, no dictator, no tyrant in all of human history has ever had the authority to defy what Christ has instructed. To contradict him or to refuse him is to put one's very soul in peril by claiming to be one with the Father. The most important thing that we should see is that he was verbally claiming to be God in the flesh. Everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did was toward this end, to demonstrate and to prove that he is God in the flesh. One of the most common questions that skeptics will ask, however, is why didn't Jesus ever actually claim to be God? The answer to that, what you say back to them when they say that is, well, what do you think about John chapter 10? Because the fact is that he did claim to be God. 
And the fact that he did, it might escape the modern skeptic, but it certainly didn't go over the heads of the Pharisees. Look at how they interpret Jesus' words. Let's look at at verses 31 to 33. We read, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They understood what Jesus was saying. It shouldn't be a surprise that the modern skeptic misses what Jesus was saying. And that's because they're not actually looking for a reason to believe in Jesus. They're looking for reasons to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Clearly, the Pharisees understood the significance and the meaning of Jesus' words here. They understood that he was claiming specifically to be God in the flesh. But they didn't quite get it entirely right, did they? They they were right that Jesus was claiming to be God. They, They got that much right. But they said this, they said, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Close, but uh, not there. Close, but not quite. He wasn't a man first who then made himself out to be God. No, he was God who took on flesh and became a man. So they've got it backwards. And John has been showing us this truth throughout his book. It started off, his book started off, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. By the way, that means that he didn't come into being, since all things that came into being came into being through him. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's how John started his book by telling us that Jesus is eternally God, that he is timeless, that he has no beginning. Man didn't become God. No, God became a man. At least they did understand that he was specifically claiming to be God, though. But Jesus now switches to another point of evidence. He points to not his words, but his works. He asks the Pharisees, which one of his good works did they plan on stoning him for? Of course, what he's doing is reminding them that his words, uh, that his works, his miracles validated his words. They confirmed his words. They confirmed this claim that he just made. What did Jesus' miracles say about him? Would they lead a person to believe that he is God or that he isn't? Of course, that's a silly question. They they would lead a person to believe that he is God incarnate. No mere mortal could do things like healing a crippled man or feeding 5,000 families, somewhere around 20,000 people with two fish and five barley loaves. We couldn't feed 50 people with two fish and five barley loaves. And giving sight to a man who was born blind, that man knew that nobody had ever done that. The Pharisees, if they were being honest, knew that, but they weren't looking to be honest. All these things that Jesus has done, all these works, all these miracles are far, far beyond the ability of man to do. That much is undeniable. But because these things were undeniable, it behooved the Pharisees, it gave them a moral obligation 
to carefully, conscientiously, and correctly consider Jesus' claims to be God in the flesh. His works and his words were more than sufficient evidence to convince somebody who is willing to be intellectually honest with the evidence and convince them that Jesus is fully God. But this brings us to an important point regarding the response of the Pharisees who continue to disbelieve. And this point is that all of the evidence in the world would not be enough to convince somebody who is determined to withhold belief. Let me say that again. All the evidence in the world would not be enough. It would be insufficient to convince somebody who is determined to withhold belief. In fact, people don't withhold belief in Jesus, faith in Jesus, because there isn't sufficient evidence uh, or, or reason to believe his deity. No, they withhold faith because there is sufficient reason, sufficient evidence uh, of his deity to believe. It's good to be intellectually honest about this matter, but when it comes to God and man's obligation to worship him, man by nature cannot and will not do anything that is good including worshiping him. Natural man will intentionally suppress any and all truth about God because it confronts him. It's like shining light into the darkness, into the darkness that somebody loves. There are people who have a very difficult time with this doctrine of total depravity because they want to believe the best about people. They want to believe that people are basically good, or they want to give people the, the benefit of the doubt. And while those are very noble and, and civil aspirations and approaches to dealing with people, the Bible does not give us that room to do that, to assume the best about people and their nature when it comes to God. Because the fact is, unregenerate man cannot and will not be intellectually honest about who Jesus is. Trying to convince someone, therefore, with evidence, without actually sharing the gospel, is just an exercise in futility. It's not going to happen. You can give somebody all the evidence in the world. The, the power of God is not in the evidence. The power of God is in the message. It's in the gospel. That's where the power of God is found regardless of how convincing the evidence might be. The Pharisees were able to refute the good works that Je or they were unable to do uh, to refute the good works that Jesus had done. They knew what he had done. They were perfectly aware of everything that Jesus had done. But what did they do with all that evidence? They ignored it. They ignored it. They, they don't even address it. They don't even talk about it. They go back to his verbal claim. We don't care what you've done that might substantiate your words. We're just concerned about your words. They're ready to stone him to death because of what he had just said. They say, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. In other words, there was no miracle, there was no work, there was no evidence that would convince them, that would persuade them to believe. None. 
Nothing was going to convince them. But now what the Pharisees are looking for is a reason to murder him that's justified by God's law, by Scripture. They accuse him of blasphemy. That's defined in the Old Testament. And so Jesus defends himself now with Scripture. Let's look at verses 34 to 39. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came and the Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father... Do not believe me, but if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Now, the argument that he gives them, that we see here in verse 34... It's a fairly difficult argument for us to understand. It's a rabbinical argument. It's, a, it's an argument that the, that the Pharisees who were trained as rabbis would have been familiar with. But the first thing that we should see is what Jesus is doing. What is Jesus doing here? He is exposing the inability of the Pharisees to handle and interpret the word of God rightly. And so he gives them an argument from the lesser to the greater. Quoting Psalm 82, verse 6, which says, I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Now, what we need to do when we see that is ask ourselves, who was God speaking to there, back in Psalm 82? Who's who's being spoken to here? God is actually addressing the judges of Israel. The verses, in the verses leading up to this point, we see things like, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. This was the responsibility given to the judges of Israel, and they weren't doing it. Instead of practicing impartiality, they were practicing partiality. They were showing favoritism. They were not executing justice. So what we need to understand is that these judges of Israel had been given power and had been given authority to act as arbiters of truth and justice. As one commentator puts it, quote, the, the judges of ancient Israel ruled with God's authority, fulfilling a holy task on God's behalf. End quote. And yet, those judges were failing miserably. Those judges were not doing their job. Why not? Because they were corrupt. And that's why God threatens them in verse 7, where the psalmist writes, Nevertheless, speaking to those judges again, Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. So the question that Jesus confronts the Pharisees with is basically this. If those judges who were so sinful and who were so corrupt could be referred to as gods, then why would it be blasphemous for Jesus to claim to be God when he wasn't corrupted by sin like they were? Jesus is basically saying, in James Montgomery Boyce's words, 
Quote, if the word gods can be used of mere men because of their function, if judges can be called gods, then how much more should I, should Jesus, be called God in the full sense since I have received a unique commissioning and exercise a unique power? End quote. So Jesus is not denying here that he is God. He's certainly not denying that he claimed to be God. And that's actually noteworthy, isn't it? I mean, if if people think that Jesus never claimed to be God, uh, not only do we see that that's not how the Pharisees, his, his contemporaries, understood his claim to be one with the Father, but when they accuse him of blasphemy, when they accuse him of claiming to be God, he doesn't say, whoa, hold on just a minute, guys. I didn't do that. I, that's not what I was saying. No, he, he knows that they understand, and they understood rightly. He's not denying that he claimed to be God in the flesh. What he's denying is that it was blasphemous for him to make such a claim, and thus nothing that Jesus has said or done is worthy of them picking up stones to murder him. We should note, by the way, in passing, the, the view of Scripture that Jesus had. What was Jesus' view of Scripture here in, uh, in, in verse 35? He says, "...in the Scripture cannot be broken." That is a high, high view of Scripture. His entire defense, Jesus' entire defense here is actually built on the scriptures. In fact, it's only built on one verse from a psalm. And the reason that this defense was sufficient is because the scriptures are sufficient. And the scriptures cannot be broken. In other words, they cannot be argued against. They cannot be contradicted. They cannot be ignored. They are the standard of truth. No person, therefore, has the authority to contradict or to argue against what the Scriptures say. They are the single highest authority that we can appeal to. J.C. Ryle notes this. He says, quote, It is as though he said, Whatever, wherever the Scripture speaks plainly on any subject, there can be no more question about it. The cause is settled and decided. Every jot and tittle of Scripture is true and must be received as conclusive. End quote. It's a high view of Scripture. Now, if Jesus had such a high view of Scripture, and his view is the highest view, And if we are to be growing in Christ's likeness, then we too must adopt this high view of the Scriptures. What that means is that none of us has the right or the privilege or the freedom to just ignore it without consequence. It means we don't try to argue against it. We don't try to refute it. That means that we must believe what it says, number one, even when it might not make a whole lot of sense, like the Trinity, there's mystery in the Trinity. Nevertheless, the mystery is very clearly revealed in Scripture. Our minds can't fully grasp it, but it's there. So we have to believe what it says, even when we don't fully understand it, or maybe more importantly, even when it seems offensive to us. If this is something that's going to guide us in our lives, in our walk with the Lord, and the flesh is inclined to walk the opposite way that the Lord prescribes, don't you think you would expect it to be offensive? 
Yes. We must believe it even when we don't completely understand it and even when it might seem offensive to us. Jesus' conclusion here is that if the Pharisees really did understand the Scriptures, if they even tried to understand the Scriptures, they would have believed his claim to be one with the Father. They would have believed his claim to be divine. He says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe in me. The question then becomes, was he doing the works of the Father? And how would you even know? By reading the Scriptures. Yes, he was doing the works of the Father. Specifically in the context here, both Jesus and the Father are committed to doing the exact same thing. Preserving and keeping the sheep given to Jesus by the Father. If the Pharisees had been wise, they would have carefully, conscientiously, and correctly considered Jesus' claim to be God in the flesh. And friends, if you have never truly believed in Jesus, if you have never truly and completely and savingly believed in Jesus, I ask the same thing of you today. Consider his claim to be God. But not only that, not only consider his words, consider also his works. Consider the miracles that we've already discussed here today. The feeding of the 5,000, healing the crippled man, healing the blind man, and the list goes on and on. But also consider his greatest miracle, raising from the grave on the third day, the Lord's day. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus, when he rose again, he appeared to over 500 people after resurrecting. And Paul adds that some of those who saw him were among those that Paul was writing to. Now, if you're just making up some story about some guy rising from the dead, would you say, hey, there are some people who you know who saw him? Would you, would you tell them that? Because what they're going to do is be like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to those people who saw him. If you are trying to propagate a lie, is that what you're going to write? No. You're going to say, well, there were a few people who saw him, but we're not sure who. So you can't ask them. So it becomes unfalsifiable. That's what liars do. Paul wasn't lying. Would Paul have done that if the resurrection was a sham? Would he have said, hey, there are 500 people who saw him, and some of them you know? No, he wouldn't. Would the disciples have spent the rest of their lives in Jesus' service if they had not seen the resurrected Jesus? Scripture tells us that they were all ready to just kind of go back to their old lives after Jesus died, before they encountered him post-resurrection. Until he revealed himself to them, they thought it was over, and they just went back to fishing. Not only would they spend the rest of their lives claiming that Jesus was resurrected, but they would be brutally persecuted, brutally beaten, tortured, and they would be killed. They'd be martyred for doing so, even when they were given multiple chances to stop. None of them ever stopped. None of them ever even changed their story, even under the threat of barbaric, gruesome death. Do people who make up a story do that kind of thing? No, they do not. People will die for a lie, but they won't die for what they know to be a lie. 
Add to that the fact that the apostles, the disciples, were spread out when they were killed for preaching the gospel. I mean, if they had remained close to each other, like, hey, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to watch out for, for Thomas over here in case he changes his story, and Thomas is saying, I'm going to watch out for Peter in case he changes his story. No, they spread out. They're not holding each other accountable, and yet none of them change their story, even when it's going to cost them their lives. They continued to proclaim the risen Savior and his gospel until their very barbaric deaths. The things that Jesus said and did, and the way it changed the lives of the eyewitnesses that saw him, that saw what he did and heard what he said, it places a moral obligation on you, friends, to consider his claims and to believe. And if you struggle to believe, then what is stopping you from asking God to help you believe? There have been thousands upon thousands of men and women who have tried, all of them unsuccessfully, to demonstrate the illegitimacy or the, the, the false uh, nature of Christ's miracles. People have tried that in every age, and all have failed miserably. Not only was there labor done in vain, but their lives were therefore wasted. And for what? For what? All persons have a moral obligation to believe in Jesus because Jesus' words, Jesus' works, Scripture, and eyewitness testimony of his ministry all give us every reason in the world to believe. Now, there are some very important applications to this passage for those who have believed, for those who have repented and savingly believed in Christ. The first major application of this passage is this. We have to realize that the problem that the Pharisees had was that they did not rightly interpret or rightly understand or apply the Scriptures. They talked about the Scriptures. They even memorized the Scriptures. They made traditions loosely based on, uh, on Scripture, but they had no idea what it actually taught. They'd been using the Scriptures as a means to an end, the end that they wanted, that being the affirmation of their own idolatry. They wanted a God who was like them. They wanted a God who would affirm them, who would give them what they wanted. They looked in vain for a God in the Scriptures who thought and looked just like them. And I think it's important to highlight this because there are so many Christians today who don't know their Bibles. And if you don't believe me, look at the state of theology in this month's Table Talk magazine. There are so many Christians today who do not know their Bibles at all and who use their Bibles only to confirm their own worldly ideals and preconceived notions. These are people who maybe even have several Bibles. Maybe they even spend a lot of time studying and reading their Bibles. Maybe they even went to seminary. And yet they will not yield to the doctrines which make them uncomfortable. They will twist and turn God's Word wherever they can, wherever they need to, to find a God or to mold a God into their own likeness. By the way, that is something that every cult 
has done. They'll say, we have the same Bible as you. Some of them have actually studied it. Some of them have gone to seminary to study it, but they do not understand it. Speaking of the current proliferation we're seeing in our nation right now of this kind of Christian who, who doesn't understand and doesn't diligently study the Bible. Richard Phillips notes this in his commentary. He says, quote, unless Christians are people of truth, we will not stand against the current of the world, and our errors will contri- contribute to the loss of many souls, including some of our own, end quote. We must come to the Scriptures humbly And by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we must allow the Scriptures to correct us, to confront us, and to conform us to the image of Christ. And let me just say this. If you come up with an understanding of the Scriptures that nobody in all of Christian history has had, you're wrong. And it's as simple as that. That's where cults come from. They come up with some kind of new understanding. Oh, Jesus wasn't actually claiming to be God here, Jehovah's Witnesses would say. They'd say, Jesus isn't God. Well, they had an unorthodox understanding of Jesus. They had an understanding of, of the Bible that nobody in all of Christian, uh, Christian history has ever had. So, consider the shoulders that we stand on. The giants who have gone before us, who have struggled and wrestled with the Bible. It's like one 2,000-year-long Bible study. Read commentaries. Read what those who came before us believed. Secondly, the second application is let us see that Christ stressed not only the importance of words, but also works. Now, it's entirely possible to go way too far with that. You may have seen somebody say something completely ridiculous like, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words, which is one of the stupidest slogans ever devised. That's like saying, give me your phone number and if necessary, use numbers. Listen, you cannot preach the gospel without words. Verbally preaching, verbally proclaiming the good news of Jesus is the means that God has ordained to save people. And yet, it's also possible to go too far the other way and to say, well, we need to preach and that's all we need to do. We don't need to do any good works. Let me just say this. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created for good works in Christ, which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Yes, we do need to do works. Not to be saved by, but because we've been saved. We don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we've been saved. Our words should be complemented by our works. Our lips and our lives should be aligned. We must not only talk the talk, we must also be willing to walk the walk. Does your life do that? Does it say any does your life say anything at all to the unbelieving world around you? Does your life bear evidence of the spirit of Christ dwelling in you and working through you? See, we we must not only know the truth, but we must also live by the truth. That's how people are pointed to Christ. And as we conclude our passage in our chapter here today, we see how that bears fruit. Look very uh, quickly with me at uh, verses 40 to 42. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. 
and he, was say, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Who's this John that we're reading about here? John the Baptist. This is talking about John the Baptist. John the Apostle finishes up this section uh, of his testimony by telling us that Jesus went back out to the area uh, past the Jordan where John the Baptist had baptized people. Now keep in mind that John the Baptist had been murdered uh, by this point. His ministry is long gone, and yet the effects of his ministry continued on. John the Baptist, as we see here, he never performed a miracle. What did he do? What we're told is that he pointed people to Christ. Remember what he said back in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But John did work as well, didn't he? He, he baptized and he preached in the wilderness. He left an impact on people. He led a devoted life and he pointed people to Jesus. Friends, that's, that's exactly what you and I are still called today to be doing. Just pointing people to Jesus. Long after John the Baptist was beheaded, the people who once heard him preach came to believe in Jesus when Jesus came to them. This is why we have to tell people about Jesus, so that they may come to know about him and to know him, to believe in him. They need to hear about the forgiveness that's found only in him. These people that we're reading about here, they heard it first from John the Baptist, but it wasn't until they saw and experienced Jesus for themselves that they believed. Friends, you and I, we, we can't convert anyone. We're not even going to be able to persuade anyone to believe. That's not our job. Our job is to know the truth about Jesus, to live under the authority of Jesus, and to share the good news about Jesus, trusting that Jesus can use that even after we're gone. Because our ministry, whatever we do, it's not about us, is it? It's about Jesus. Our mission here is to know Jesus and make him known. That might even happen after we're gone. If we're faithful to share the truth that we know and live by, Jesus can come to those we share it with and confirm those truths for them. And what do we know about Jesus based on this chapter? We know that through the faithful preaching of the gospel, Jesus will call by name, will gather, and will secure every single one of the sheep that have been given to him by the Father. How do we know that? Because he is God incarnate, just like he claimed to be, and just like his works confirmed him to be. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the clear testimony of man's fallenness, even our own fallenness, our, our desperate, desperate need for grace. Thank you for showing us, Lord, where we would be without your grace. But we thank you that by your grace, 
you have chosen and saved us. You have put your spirit in us, causing us to believe and causing us to walk according to your word. Oh Lord, the flesh can be so strong, but greater is he who lives in us. Greater is your power, O oh Lord, than the power of our flesh. And that's the reason we believe, and that's the reason that we're gathered here today. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in us, to conform us to the image of Christ, to teach us to hate sin and to love the things that you love. Teach us, O oh Lord, to be a light in the darkness, not only with our words, but with our works, all for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.